Now, the main point that I'm going to be driving home is that God dwells with his people. He dwells with his people. We see it in the Old Testament when he tabernacled in the wilderness. He gave very specific instructions for the tent that it was a, a tr- basically a transportable temple that he would dwell in. That was his way of communing with his people. We see it in the first temple. We see it in the second temple. And we see it now where he dwells in each and every one of us. The first point, there's three points I got for you this morning. The first one is, well, let's go through them. Established, evidence, and edict. So with the first point established, I'm, we're really going to just focus in on, on literally the, like the first one, two, three verses here. We see this pattern of, of the disciples. They're all together. They were following Jesus. These were men who were very close with each other, very close with Jesus, learning from him, spending time with him. They're together. And we see that continue. He had told them, don't leave, to wait. We see them together praying in the upper room, doing various things that they might, might not have, uh, should have, maybe, I don't know, filling, filling apostleships. Um, so what we see here in verse 2 is the establishment of his church with regards to neither Jew or Gentile. We're going to be talking about the birth of the church. And I'm going to clarify for us what is meant by, you'll hear the term, the baptism of the Spirit, and then you're also going to hear, be ye filled with the Spirit, to be filled with the Spirit of God. And these can be confusing things. We're going to try to break that down this morning. These first few verses, this is the establishment of the church. And something to keep in mind is that what we're seeing in this chapter is just promise upon promise fulfilled. Promises of old and promises of new. Jesus promised in Matthew chapter 16 that he would build his church. And so this day of Pentecost marks a new era. One that was previously a mystery that they didn't know the details of, but it's now being revealed. People are being placed into the church and referred to as the body of Christ, which is a distinction from the Israelites who were not referred to as the body of Christ because obviously Christ had not yet come. We weren't made one with him. When he begins to dwell with us, we become one with Christ. So this birth of the church is simultaneous with the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And this is promised. When we went through Acts chapter 1, what we see is the, the disciples being equipped And in chapter 2, we see them being empowered. It was promised in chapter 1 of verse 5 that you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And this was right before he ascended. So it was within 50 days of Pentecost. It was after his resurrection. He was around. He said, not many days from now, you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So what does that mean? First, let's, let's pay attention to what the Old Testament pattern is. We see in the Old Testament the Holy Spirit moving people. We see him being upon people, accomplishing his work through people. But the New Testament, we see the Holy Spirit indwelling. 
and transforming, giving you a new heart, writing his law on your heart. These are all very significant points to keep in mind. The Old Testament speaks of the Spirit of God in Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2, the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. But in Joel chapter 2, it says, it will come about after this that I will pour out my Spirit on all mankind. And we see in Galatians chapter 3, which is going to be up on the screen, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Jesus says to Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So there's a new criteria. There's a new criteria from this day forward. In Romans 8, it's written, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. 1 Corinthians 6 is going to come up on the screen here. In verse 19, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God and you are not your own? The implications of this is profound. I just talked about how you see in the Old Testament failure upon failure. Murdering of the prophets, scorn against the word of God to his people. And God always held up his end of the bargain. So what are we flipping to? It's what's called the new covenant. It's where Christ's atonement on the cross, his resurrection from the dead, his ascension and glorification opens the pathway for the Holy Spirit to be sent to dwell in his people and not upon or with or moving with his people in you. So there is this distinction. It is not the same thing. This is not the same thing as you attempting to obey God out of your own will. Looking at the law and saying, I need to live up to this. And it's not that you and I won't do that, but there's this clear distinction where we submit to the presence of God in, in you when you're regenerated and placed into the body of Christ. This is significant. I don't know how I can stress this enough. This is one of the most important days in human history because for 4,000 years leading up to this day, as I said at the beginning, it was God's pursuit of dwelling with his people. And so this is the culmination of that on the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit does a number of things. The Holy Spirit empowers Empowers to do what? To do what he has commanded us to do. To share the gospel, to preach the good news, to, the cap to set the captives free. At any command, we are looking to obey that command. The Holy Spirit is empowering us to do so. He's there to convict us of sin, to sanctify us, which sanctification is be being slowly made into the image of Jesus Christ. We're all not there yet. But every day as we submit to the Spirit of God dwelling in us, dwell on His Word, let it dwell in us richly, we become made into the image of, of Christ. That's the role of the Holy Spirit. And there's more. There's more. But those are the main points. And He gives gifts to each of us as well. 
I'm going to point out something about Pentecost. There were feasts that the, that the Israelites would celebrate throughout the Old Testament. And they were given in Leviticus 23. So Moses went up on the Mount Sinai and he obtained the law or the, the Torah. And it commanded his people very specifically. All these, like, it's so specific. When you look at these things, it's like, why did it need to be this length or this? And so, and we are, we are shown in, Levit- in, I think, is it Leviticus 23? Leviticus 23, it is. Good. Um, there are feasts that God's people are to recognize, acknowledge, celebrate together. This was one of those feasts. Pentecost is also known as the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Harvest. It was seven weeks in to the celebration of Passover. And it was a celebration of the anticipation of the full harvest to come. So we have the harvest beginning near Passover. We have seven weeks in. We have the harvest is beginning to come in. And the Feast of Harvest, or Pentecost, was celebrated anticipating the full harvest which was to come months down the road. It was saying, here's where we are. Look, God's been faithful. Here's where we're going. Okay? Pentecost means a 50th part of. And so in first century Israel at the time, it, began, it became to be also celebrated or affiliated with the law of God being given through Moses on Mount Sinai. And when did that happen? It was 50 days after the departure from Egypt. Now, I'm going to start to get into parallels. God does things in a specific way for a purpose, for a reason. And we're about to see some of, some of these, these incredible plans that God had from thousands of years ago that are now being fulfilled in the passage that we're reading. I mentioned that earlier. The law of God was the Torah. It was given 50 days after the departure from Egypt. Pentecost, 30 AD, about-ish, could be 33 AD. The law of God written on our hearts, not the Torah. It was written on our hearts, was given 50 days after the resurrection. The departure from Egypt was a breaking of physical bondage. The resurrection of Jesus was a breaking of our spiritual bondage. So you see these parallels. It happened here, now it's happening Thousands of years later, the Torah was an outwardly focused law that signified the birth. When that came and Israel agreed, oh, that sounds great. God says, this is what I'll do for you and this is what I demand of you. In return, they agreed. This marked the birth of the ethnic nation of Israel, the Torah. It was their law. It was their code. It was like the Constitution of the United States of America. And so we see in 30 or 33 AD, Pentecost, this inwardly focused law that signified the birth of the church as a nation of the people of God, neither Jew nor Gentile. Another parallel that may or may not have been on purpose, but I think God does things on purpose, is that he descended on Mount Sinai with fire and smoke. And as we read in this passage, he came down with tongues as of fire. Why am I talking about these feasts? This feast. Well, there's other feasts. Feast of Passover was first. Heard on Passover, 
They put the blood on the doorpost, angel of death passed on, knowing that that family was covered by the blood. We see in 1 Corinthians 5 that Christ is our Passover, so he fulfilled that type. I'm going to use the word type. It means a shadow or a picture of something that is to come. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 16, Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in question, questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Verse 17, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So we see these feasts and we see later on, Christ fulfilled each of these feasts on the exact day that those feasts occurred. So Christ is our Passover. He died on Passover. Just like the lamb was put on the doorpost, he is our lamb for our doorpost. The next feast was one day later. It was the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And what this was a reminder of was when the Israelites left Egypt, they had so little time, they were rushing, they didn't have time to grab their leaven. They, they just didn't have leaven. They, were, they had to leave really, really quickly. And so what leaven is, it's, it's like yeast. It makes dough rise. All throughout Scripture, we see that leaven is a type or an analogy for sin. So this feast was of unleavened bread, and it's a picture of Christ's sinless life. At that point, Christ was in the grave, but he's sinless. And so the implications of that are that the next day, the feast of first fruits was celebrated. It was two days after Passover. It was a picture of Christ's resurrection. Now, the feast of first fruits was when the, this wheat harvest began to come in. The very first sheath, sheaf that came in was to be dedicated and given to God. And this was the first sheaf. Of the, so a sheaf is a bundle of, of wheat and grain, and that was dedicated and given to God, and they would wave it in the air. This is a picture of Christ's resurrection because he is the first fruits of the harvest. In 1 Corinthians 15, we see that he's the first fruits of those who sleep. He's the very first. And then we arrive 50 days after Passover at Pentecost. The first, this is another type of first fruits feast. This was seven weeks in to their agricultural year, and the harvest has begun to come in. This is Pentecost. This was fulfilled with the coming of the Holy Spirit to seal the 120 in the upper room. And it was a down payment or a guarantee, a pledge of the future inheritance, which is to be the full harvest to come, which we have not hit as of yet. That is Feast of Trumpets. That has yet to be fulfilled. Why am I saying these about the, the feast? So, God does things on purpose. He does things for, on, in a pattern. In the Old Testament, he fulfilled these feasts on the day of, and he fulfilled the feast of harvest on Pentecost on the day of with the birth of his church through the sending of the Holy Spirit, placing those 120 believers into what's known as the body of Christ. And the important point, the reason I bring that up, is because there are teachings that verse 1 has anything to do with verse 2. Luke is writing history here. Verse 1 ends with a period. He is noting this is what occurred. This is what happened. It's very straightforward. The day of Pentecost arrived. They're together in one place. There are people who tell you that if you come into unity in one place and 
pray for a certain amount of time or tarry that you will be basically either worthy of or you will bring on any kind of baptism of the Spirit. But we see here that God had predetermined the birth of the church to be on the day of Pentecost. Regardless of what the apostles were doing, regardless of if there were other people in that upper room, Christ was going to birth his new nation of neither Jew nor Gentile on that day. He did it with the first three feasts and he did it with that feast. I touched on this a little bit. The baptism of the Holy Spirit occurs at the moment of regeneration. What I mean by regeneration, our spirits are all dead when we were unbelievers. The moment of salvation is when the Holy Spirit regenerates you in your spirit and now in the new covenant indwells you. He regenerates you and he indwells you. We know from Romans 5 If any man has not the Spirit of God, he is none of his. So we know that if you don't have the Spirit of Christ, you don't belong to him. So these things occur simultaneously. The baptism of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling of the Spirit, and salvation. This is not earned. You don't do anything to obtain or put yourself in a position to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. This is on God's timetable. It's according to His will. We're aware throughout all of Scripture that God is the one who acts first and He comes and brings you to a place of repentance and regeneration. This is Titus 3.5 that says, He saved us not on the basis of deeds, which we've done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration, renewing by the Holy Spirit. That's baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's not equal to salvation. However, it comes with salvation. He now has a legal right to indwell you. Now, to be filled with the Holy Spirit, in this case, is experiential. It's something that when you are placed into the body of Christ, this is something that by the grace of God, we continue to walk in. We are never commanded to be baptized by the Spirit again. However, in the Old Testament, we see consistently, constantly, and we see many times in the book of Acts where someone who was already filled with the Spirit is filled again. Peter was filled with the Spirit. Stephen was filled with this group of people were filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke in tongues. So we see this as something we are also told to be being kept filled with the Spirit. It's experiential because the baptism of the Holy Spirit is not experiential. You don't know what's going on spiritually. To be filled with the Holy Spirit, it goes, the Bible goes into great detail of what that looks like. What the outcome would be. You see the fruits of the Spirit in someone's life. That is evidence of the filling of the Spirit, complete submission and domination to the Spirit of God. To be filled with the Spirit of God is to get, out of, get yourself out of the way and in complete submission to the Spirit of God who's dwelling in you to then move you, to be upon you, to be doing His will rather than our own. You are not being filled with the Spirit. We're told not to grieve the Spirit. We know that we're grieving the Spirit when we're not obeying His will. 
as a regenerated soul with the indwelling baptism of the Holy Spirit, we can go on to disobey. This would be not in full submission to the Spirit of God. Ephesians 5.18, And do not get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Filling is to be maintained by grace, and it's supposed to be ongoing your whole life. Ideally, we would be filled with the Spirit the rest of our days. Baptism is one time, and it is irreversible. Anyone tells you that you can lose your salvation, just know that that would mean that God's a liar. The Holy Spirit is a seal of promise. Now you can get into question if they were originally saved in the first place. But this is not something that can be undone. God has his way. Second point we're going to be hitting on is evidence. Evidence. You see in verse 2, And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. It filled the entire house where they were sitting. This wind was powerful, it was loud, it was violent, but it was, doesn't say it was actual wind. We look throughout all Scripture, we can see that the breath of God was breathed on Adam to give him life. So too is the breath or wind of God blown on his people to give them life. A couple examples is Job 33 is going to go on the wall here. In verse 4, the Spirit of God has made me. And the breath of the Almighty gives me life. Ezekiel chapter 37 says, Again, he said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you that you may come to life. Something that was previously not alive. I will put sinews on you, make flesh grow back on you, cover you with skin and put breath in you that you may come alive and you will know that I am the Lord. How do we know that the Spirit is dwelling in us? For the apostles, there was an evidence. They didn't have a scripture to refer to to know what had happened. God was showing them through the sound of wind and the appearance of tongues of fire that something significant had happened. If we look to what Jesus said was going to happen, we see that it was the baptism of the Holy Spirit because he said so. But how do we know? Because nowadays, you don't see visible fire. Well, we know throughout Scripture that you will be changed. It's the reason why we do what we do. It's the reason that we hate what we once loved. It's the reason that you're here this morning by God's grace, that you're continuing on. I mean, it's not always the easiest thing to get out of bed and come to church. But something in you, something in you is is pushing you, empowering us. When you hate what you used to once love, that is, that is one evidence. The Spirit of God dwelling in you. When the things you used to do repulse you. It makes you want to puke. Or if it doesn't, you're, you can't be at peace until you repent. That is an evidence. Are you bothered until you repent? That's a good thing. Another implication is that we all share the same life in the Holy Spirit The point is that God dwells with his people today, and so we're seeing that with each of us. If you are a believer, you're regenerated, he's dwelling with you. And this is a fulfillment of what Jesus said. He prayed to the Father in John 17 that we would be one with each other. 
be put on Christ, we're one with each other. As Jesus and the Father are one, that we would be one with him and we would be one with each other. This is a, another fulfillment of, of, of that prayer. Jesus' prayer was not unanswered. And then the other evidence, tongues as, as of fire. Pay attention here. As of fire. Didn't say tongues, fiery tongue. It said tongues as of fire. As, it's a descriptor. Rested on each of them. I don't know if it was in their mouth. Their mouth was glowing. But when you see fire flickering, it was, it was the Holy Spirit taking control of their language. And we're going to look into why. It says that a tongue or a language rested on each of them. Something important. When we look at Scripture, we don't add more and we don't take out. We look at what it says. Acts chapter 2 is talking about a real, phonetic language. To tie that to anything other than foreign, real languages to be understood by other people is wrong. You're adding to Scripture. So this is a sign. We're going to look at how this la- these languages were a sign. We see in verse 11, skipping through, we're going down just because it, it mentions a lot of different languages. Verse 11, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. Something to keep in mind here. The wonderful works of God up to this point were only ever spoken, written, and taught in Hebrew. They believed it was the language of God. So why were wonderful works of God being spoken in foreign languages? This would actually be might might even be gross misconduct. I mean, on on the behalf of someone to speak the wonderful works of God in a heathen language. I mean, these people. I mean, the ethnic people of God, holy, set apart, and then to take like these other languages that God has nothing to do with. He's never dealt with these people. He only you know, and so. What is it a sign of? The wonderful works of God being spoken in other languages. It serves a divine purpose. So for, we're going to hit on two points here. For believers, it's a sign of blessing. This is a reversal of the curse at the Tower of Babel where all peoples were split as a sign of judgment for misbehavior, for disobedience and sin. They did not obey God and so he confused their languages to separate these people out, to then go and subdue the earth. So it's a blessing to believers because we recognize this as a reversal. It's a restoration of what was given out at Babel. We see languages being used to bring his church into unity, a common faith in the Messiah, the revealed Messiah. This is an opening up of redemption to all nations, all nations, all nation languages. So setting aside the exclusivity of the one ethnic nation people because it, Babel created different cultures and ethnicities and God worked through Israel. So it's setting aside this exclusivity. Now for unbelievers, we're going to see what it's a sign of. The third point is edict. Edict is a formal pronouncement or command. 
a decree or proclamation issued by an authority having the force of law. 1 Corinthians 14.21 is going to go up on the screen. In the law it's written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. I'm going to stop there. We're going to go back to verse 22 in a second here. This is referencing Isaiah. It says here, in the law. So what, what is, what's going on in Isaiah? Well, Isaiah is pronouncing warning of impending judgment on a degenerate Israel, a disobedient Israel. Yet they would not hear. And so Isaiah writes, he likens it, this is the word of God, he's likening the spiritual and physical state of Israel to a drunken party where they're all sitting at a table and the table is covered in vomit. This is a, a horrible picture to have in your mind. Everyone's full of vomit. They can't do anything right. And Israel's response is to God is, or to Isaiah speaking in place of God, to whom will he teach knowledge? To whom will he explain the message? Those who are weaned from the, the milk, those taken from the breast? This is where edict comes in. For it is precept upon precept, precept upon precept, which means order upon order, commandment upon commandment from this man Isaiah. Line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. So God responds through Isaiah, for by people of strange lips and with a foreign language, a foreign tongue, the Lord will speak to this people to whom he said, this is rest, give rest to the weary. This is what he said before. He said, come to me, be my people, rest. And this is repose. Yet they would not hear. And the word of the Lord will be to them. So they're over here mocking Isaiah for speaking and being obedient to God, one of very few actually obeying God. And these people are making fun of him and God responds. And the responses of God are, let's just say, they are authoritative. <laughs> and the, Lord, the word of the Lord said, yet they would not hear. And the word of the Lord will be to them, precept upon precept, precept upon precept. Then have it, right? Line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little that they may go and fall backward and be broken and snared and taken. You're going to make fun of my law. You're going to make fun of my commandments. It will be what breaks you. And yet they would not listen. This is what 1 Corinthians is referring to. Tongues, strange lips, are a sign of impending judgment. In Isaiah, 1 Corinthians. Go back to Deuteronomy 28. Moses said the coming invasion of Israel, he foretold... For unfaithfulness would be from a nation whose language is foreign. It's not just Isaiah, it's Moses. It's not just Moses, it's Jeremiah. He says the same thing. And it culminates in the Babylonian captivity where they're slaughtered and hauled off to Babylon by a people that they can't even understand. If you won't listen to me when I'm speaking to you in a language that you can understand, I will get your attention. And I will speak to you in a language that you can't understand. A language that you don't understand is a sign of judgment for unbelievers. 
a sign that judgment is here. Let's go to 1 Corinthians, that verse 22. Chapter 14, verse 22. Thus tongues, this is a conclusion based off of that understanding. Are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. We're going to focus on that first part. Thus tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. So for believers, it's a blessing. It is a sign of this great new era where I get to be included because I believe on the Messiah. For unbelievers, those who were in Israel not listening to Isaiah, the Jews who crucified their Messiah and continually mocked and denied him, it is a sign to them that judgment is coming. The judgment is that Israel is now set aside and the church is taking her place. But not forever, because in Romans 11, we see that God is faithful to his people Israel, and he will deal with them one day. So the apostles with tongues warned and warned and warned. So this was around 30 AD, and 40 years later, we see the desecration, the complete destruction of the nation of Israel. The temple, gone, dispersed. 40 years later. I think that's significant. It's for a reason. These things are done for a reason. I'm not going to extrapolate. I'm not going to add to Scripture. Around 40 years later, they didn't listen. But for us, it is comforting to know that we are a family. We are one in Christ. He's empowered us to do His work to serve our community, to serve each other, to love each other, that when we submit to him, when we dwell on his word richly, that we can do his will, that we can, the fruit of the Spirit will well up in us like rivers of living water, that love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control are our portion that belongs to us as we submit to the Spirit of God. Father, uh, we thank you for this, this word that you've given us. Lord, I pray that you, would be, that you were glorified today and that we would uh, take to heart what you have to say in your word, what all of Scripture says. God, we thank you for your spirit that unites us. God, we thank you for this new era where I am not Jewish. God, you've chosen a people who are neither Jew nor Gentile to do your, do your will. Spread the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ that he died on the cross, and that we must repent of our sins to be made alive, to dwell with Christ forever. We thank you that you dwell with your people, and you always will. We pray this in your name. Amen.